Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Paleo Cinema Podcast and the Martian Drive-In Podcast. And it's all Patreon's fault. I'll be honest with you, Patreon, the people who do the subscription service for me so that people can donate to the podcast, had a brain fart the other week and decided they were going to charge an extra fee to subscribers so that the end of the fee that the um, content creators create would be a higher percentage of what the people actually ask for. So basically, if you were donating a dollar, you'd be paying a dollar thirty-eight. So I wasn't too happy about that. A lot of people weren't. I know uh, a friend of mine, Grant Watson, quit Patreon because of it, uh, even though about a week later, Patreon reversed the decision because it was just so intensely unpopular with everybody concerned. So basically, the business model for me getting support for the podcast was endangered by this. So before... Uh, Patreon reversed that decision I decided that the only way I could do things for the subscribers was to increase the amount of content that I give first to the Patreon and the PayPal subscribers there are some people who donate via PayPal as well and thank you again to all of those people and to everybody else can't leave out the people who for reasons of their own and or sometimes just, just not able to afford it don't subscribe to the podcast perfectly fine i try not to have two class of people listening to the podcast but because the patreon people are forking out money i was starting to look at ways in which i could give more value added to them because of what patreon was doing so i was up late one night and i'd had too many coffees and I came up with an idea. I, didn't, I don't know still whether it was a good idea or not, but it was an idea. It generated a bit of social media buzz, mostly mockery from my friends, oddly enough. Uh, here's what happened. I decided that I was going to try to do a totally honest and unbiased um, review of Star Wars The Last Jedi if I got a certain number of new Patreon subscribers in spite of the kerfuffle going on with patreon so i uh, originally it was going to be 10 people so i decided if i get 10 more subscribers i will fork out the spondulix go and see the movie and try to do an honest review of it now patreon then changed its mind about a day or two later just to fuck me over so i took that down to five new subscribers because because the business model wasn't changing and because some people were anticipating me looking at this film I decided that what I was going to do was make it five subscribers and then I would go and see the movie and do an honest review, which this is. This is going to be the honest review. Uh, so I was up to four and my dear darling wife, Sally, threw 12 bucks on me and said, here's your subscription. You've got to go and see the movie now. I then got another subscriber, Mark Leeper. So thank you very much for that, Mark. Um, but I ended up with six. So some people threw more money than others. Some people threw it through PayPal, some through Patreon. Whichever way you get it, you're going to get this podcast a week earlier than everybody else. Uh, if I miss out on anybody, I apologize and just let me know and I'll make it up to you in some other way. So what happened was I was stuck with the task of seeing the movie. And to be honest with you, it stressed me out. It really shouldn't. And it didn't stress me out for those reasons people might think that, you know, I hate Star Wars and I don't want to go see the movie, that kind of thing. Here's what stressed me out about it. And this is kind of very personal and very silly. I'll admit that. I'm not a man of logic some of the time. It's that I was, 
I really wanted to avoid doing a hatchet job on the movie. I wanted to look at it in the context of 2017 cinema and 21st century cinema. I wanted to come in as fresh as I could. I wanted to give credit where credit was due, but also not ignore the things that aren't virtuous about the movie and don't seem to work for me. So I went and got a ticket. I bought it online. The cinema was about half full when I got there. Uh, I'll tell you something really funny. I did put this on social media, but for those of you who aren't following my social media, here's what happened. I was lining up to get my... Because when you've got a um, pensioner card, so like a senior's card, if you're over 60 like I unfortunately am, you get discounts at cinemas for various weird and wonderful things and discounts at other places, cafes, all sorts of shit like that. The only criterion is you don't die before your 60th birthday and you've got one of the cards. So I was up lining up for my choc top ice cream and my bottle of water because I don't drink sugar drinks if I can possibly avoid them. And I looked up at the um, marquee that showed the movies that were showing. And, of course, it's electronic now, so it changes from advertising to a list of the movies that are showing. And I suddenly went, what the fuck? Because one of the movies showing in our area, and we do have, um, they show Bollywood movies as well as mainstream um, Anglo movies in the Cineplex, uh, the Werribee 10 Cinemas, which is the one about a kilometre from my place, so it's walking distance. So they do show movies for Indian people because we have large Indian population. We also have a large um, Somali-Australian population, a large Pinoy population. It's very multicultural around here. It's one of the reasons why I love it. So there was a movie called, and I kid you not, Fuck Ray Returns. F-U-K-R-E-Y Returns. So I took a photo of that and said, is this the movie I'm supposed to be seeing? And sure enough, it is, it's actually a, um, a sequel to a movie called Fuck Ray, which is a Bollywood movie. Really, really popular in um, India, in Hindi kind of stuff. But because I was going to see Star Wars, The Last Jedi, I thought that was funny. Um, it, it cheered me up a little bit, to be honest. So I got in the cinema, it was about half full. And uh, I went to a 10.30 a.m. session. I didn't want to go to a session that would be full of school kids and other people who would scream and shout and throw things and annoy me while I was watching the movie because I wanted to give it all of my regard and all of my attention, which I did. And then suddenly there were like 55 ads before the movie started. There were about 12 ads for Lego Star Wars things. There were ads for electric shavers so you could get a reasonable three-day stubble which were all star wars branded so philips apparently have a thing where you try you know you use one of their shavers and you suddenly look like oscar isaac doesn't really work like that but they had that in there and so the crossover merch was starting to really seriously annoy me um i didn't in the movie, there's absolutely no shavers. I didn't see anybody taking a shave in the movie, but apparently it was a crossover promotion. And it pissed me off. Um, you know, I was I was going in there to see the movie. I wasn't going in there to try have someone sell me a shaver. I've got a beard. I don't need a fucking shaver. But um, so there was that in there. The ice cream was very nice. I did have a banana-flavored choc-top ice cream, which they brought back, which was nicer than a bottle of water. And I was in a pretty crowded row at the cinema, but that was okay. So the movie starts and the John Williams theme blasts out at high decibels right at the start. And The Crawl came on. 
And that's where I'm going to leave it until I put this piece of music in because I think it is very, very apt. A Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars, don't let them How about that nutty Star Wars bar? Can you forget all the creatures in there? And hey, Darth Vader in that black and evil mask, did he scare you as much as he scared me? Ah, Star Wars! Those near in Star Wars! My seventh winner up here! Star Wars! Thank you, Bill Murray. Um, I'm going to do this. I uh, just kind of worked out a way I can do this. It'll kind of make it work and make it fair and make it not sound like a nasty bitch fest, basically. Uh, I'm going to say a good thing and I'm going to say a bad thing in alternate alternatives, one, one of each, about the movie because I think that it's not a total car wreck. There were bits of it that I liked a fair bit and there are bits of it that I don't think play well in 2017. And what I did try to do, as much as is humanly possible, and yes, there is a, I've got a, um, an instinctive bias against Star Wars, but I was trying to be as objective and neutral as I could and did what I really could to put aside my own preconceptions and prejudices with this. So if I fail, I apologise. If I succeed, please shower me with rose petals. But uh, the first thing is, good things and now this is spoilerific all the way through so if you haven't seen the movie and you are at all interested in it please i'm going to play you a little bit of hold music you can go watch the movie and then come back a bit so i'll just play the hold music for you now Okay, if you've seen it now, uh, good. So we'll get started. I'm going to start with a good thing because that's fair if I start with a good thing. How fucking good was Mark Hamill? I liked him in this a lot. Uh, I loved him as a voiceover artist for a long time. He's an unfortunate actor in some ways because of the stereotyping that Star Wars gave him. But in this one, it paid off for him a lot. He brought a gravitas to the role. He brought a poignancy to Luke Skywalker's story. He really did... um, bring more to it than in fact i thought he had as an actor and all credit to him for that in a sense he's the emotional heart of the movie where it does have an emotional heart and there's a lot of detritus to get through to get there but i was very impressed i liked him in this movie i liked it as a send-off for the character and i liked it as a send-off for him the weird thing and and this is odd and yes it may well be me there was more squee in me when he met up with R2-D2 on the Millennium Falcon again, then when he met up with Carrie Fisher. Um, I think that that little joke she made about her hair took away from the moment, even though it was funny. I think that there are certain emotional beats of that kind of a 
reconciliation called for, and I think that the joke took away from it, even though it may well have been an ad-lib by Carrie Fisher, who knows. But I think that they really steered away from having a grace moment there that really would have added to the movie for me, something for the grown-ups. They decided to go for the joke, which was probably a mistake, but um, still, everything else in that moment worked. Unfortunately, they didn't seem to have too much time together, which is a bit sad. Would have been nicer if they had have given a little more time to that than they did to some other things, because I think that that's not only what the fans wanted, but I think it may well have been something good for the characters, because one of the things that this movie wasn't strong on is kind of doing reason, you know, doing justice to the to the characters and the actors. And I think that that's a big minus for this film. So that, that's a good thing. Uh, Mark Hamill is the most valuable player in this movie. There's no argument about that. Um, so I'll then go from something that is problematic. It's not necessarily a negative thing, but I think it's maybe something that they need to kind of phase out of the Star Wars. Star Wars as a series is very formulaic and there are certain things you've got to do with it in it uh, in the in the tradition of things like kabuki theatre and, and all sorts of other kind of hidebound and very restricted art forms. And in a sense, this movie is a first step in getting out of the strictures imposed on it by George Lucas. Um, and in this case, it's that crawl at the start of the movie that tells you what's happening because people expect it. They expect to hear the John Williams music. But it's a very dated kind of thing. It Really, you don't need to have that crawl at the start of the movie. It's just that everybody expects you to. And then they kind of do the thing where they either go up or they go down from the starscape to a planet or to a spaceship. It's obvious. And even though I think a lot of people like it, for me, it was something that I questioned and went, yeah, maybe they, they've got to find a different way to start things off, play against people's expectations. One of the things that I like about cinema in general is uh, there's two kinds of cinema, as indeed there are 55 million kinds of two kinds of cinema. But one of the two kinds of cinema there are are the ones that meet what they think the audience's expectation are is and the ones that exceed it and take it in a different direction. And I think that that's the kind of cinema that I like, where they go, okay, well, people are expecting this, we're going to give them a tiny taste of this and then take them somewhere else entirely where the flavours and the vistas are better. And I think that that's maybe what they've got to do with that crawl at the start. I don't think it's a wise thing necessarily 40 years from now. And remember, the franchise is 40 years old. 40 years from now, seeing the same old yellow crawl going up the screen, it's going to get tired at some stage. For me, it's already tired. But even for the diehard fans... Um, I, I think that it, there's going to be a stage at which it's going to get tired. It's a trope left over from serial movies um, in the 1940s and 1950s where there were movie serials in cinemas, 30s, 40s and 50s. And if people hadn't seen the previous episode, if you went to the cinema the previous Saturday night, then you needed that little bit of a catch-up to tell people where the heroes were at, whether it was Batman, Captain America did had a serial, Superman had a serial, uh, The Shadow, a whole bunch of other people had serials, and those crawls were there specifically for people who hadn't 
been there for previous episodes so they could get into the story straight away. Um, it was a cute trope in 1977, but I don't think it plays well now. So, um, next good thing. Benicio Del Toro playing DJ, which is the most cliched fucking name you can think. But Del Toro comes in and the movie lifts. You know there's going to be something that's not formulaic. It's not something that's already been in the franchise. It's something a little bit different. And he's not given a lot to do. I mean, he's not in the movie for a hell of a long time. But I liked his character and I liked the fact that his character was true to itself by not having that horrible thing that um, a lot of movie series do. And Star Wars is the worst offender in this of turning bad guys good. Uh, maybe they'll end up doing that with Del Toro's character in a future episode, but in this one, the character straight stayed true to his mercenary roots. He was a crim to start with, and he was a crim at the end, and he was, yeah, right down the centre. He was chaotic neutral as far as the character's concerned. But Del Toro seemed to be having fun, which too often he doesn't have in movies, and kind of had a little bit of, yeah, he was playful in this one, and I really appreciate that. Uh, again, a, a very fine actor, and I, I mean, my thought for a moment there was he was slumming it by being in a Star Wars movie, but I, I really liked the character. I liked what he did. I liked the fact that they didn't do an instant redemption on the character and that he did what he needed to do for himself and and that's kind of cool having that kind of moral ambiguity is one of the ways of chipping away that enormous wall that is the legacy of george lucas so really enjoyed that part other um negative things here we go i'll get the big one out of the way porgs porgs were basically there to sell merchandise there was no reason to have them there there was reason to have them in there because they wanted something with chewbacca on the millennium falcon in the trailer they wanted to sell lots of plush toys but apart from that they're just basically hairy puffins as a good friend brian higgins has, has mentioned and that um really it, it's obvious i mean if you're going to have merchandising don't just have a character in there that's purely merchandising and is in there purely for that reason the other example they used which didn't do that was of course the crystal foxes who were used as a part of the plot which was kind of interesting. They were much cooler and much more wonderful and kind of sense of wondering than were the Porgs. Having the Crystal Foxes really did work and it worked to move the story along and to go, okay, we've got to get from here to there. How do we do it? We will incorporate these wonderful looking creatures as a part of that. And that, that kind of worked for me because they did have a plot point, whereas the Porgs were purely there for a couple of yucks and to sell a lot of merch okay next good thing and i have to really thank john scalzi for the image i, I kind of had it in my head already but scalzi blogged about this movie today and wrote down exactly what i was thinking and that is um the grand emperor snoke snoke i think it is snoke yeah the one with the smashed up face i love the fact that snoke's kind of throne room came out of an MGM musical. It's got that bright red background. I half expected Sid Charisse to slide across the floor with Bob Fosse during that part because it was pure red. There was no sense of depth. It um, it had a couple of the um, bad guys for Ray and um, Ben to fight. 
in the movie and it was just that pure deep technicolor red which you don't see often in movies which is kind of nice having that change to a color palette really worked for me so i really liked that set it, it was really nice but i think that it, it was a slightly odd choice which is good i mean yeah go out of left field who knows maybe he liked musicals we don't know that and that kind of deep red thing was very, very Stanley Donnan, Michael Kidd, Bob Fosse. And I appreciated that, though. Had they CG'd Sid Charisse into the thing, I would have been much, much happier with it. But that throne room really rocked. Um, having that minimalist thing and having it look like an MGM musical was a left-field kind of approach that I really, really appreciated. But if they ever do that again, I really want them to chuck in Fred Astaire. Just saying. Uh, so negative things. Uh, one of the things that I, I don't like in movies, and, and again, I'm making this as wide as I can because it's not just something that happens in this particular film, is um, actors and characters being crazily underwritten. And I think there are a few of them that are. I think that Ray's underwritten. At first I thought it was the actor Daisy Ridley, but I had a um, brief online chat with my friend Grant and he says uh, take a look again it was underwritten yeah it was the character is underwritten um there's no one of the I've got a couple of problems with a couple of the characters one of which is why the fuck does a street scum from a desert planet have a middle class English accent there should be a little more there um you don't grow up to be the kind of character that's portrayed to us as Ray coming from that kind of environment it, it psychologically and sociologically it's invalid it, it really is fucked nobody comes up it's an eliza doolittle kind of a trope and i don't think it really works particularly well but again the character was underwritten all she had to do was kind of you know fall for the sexy bad boy a little bit and then be betrayed and then find her own strength so there's that arc in there, and fair enough too. But again, it's a dead common kind of arc, and it isn't particularly well done. Uh, and then, there, of course, there's the character of Finn who doesn't get to do too much except being kissed once and doing a suicide run at a giant cannon, which seems to be a kind of a silly thing to do. One of the... Oh, I'll, I'll save that for the next bad thing. But I think the characters are underwritten. There's a little more with Oscar Isaac's character Poe, um, where he kind of you know, goes off half-cocked and nearly fucks things up a couple of times. So there's a little more to do with that. And also, also Oscar Isaac is a more experienced and possibly a much better actor than John Boyega or Daisy Ridley are. And so he, just by his craft brings more in when even though the script is a little thin on those kind of things and so his character gets a little more kind of to work with there mostly because he has more things to do and also partly because oscar isaac is such a fine actor so we've got that um now but if you're going to get actors in and you're going to kind of possibly stereotype them for life in some instances you really do need to give them a bit more meat on the bone than the script gave them because it's people's lives and careers we're talking about here. And also the audience really appreciates a little bit of emotional depth and a little bit of complexity there. Which brings me to the next good thing. 
there is an increasing moral ambiguity in this universe. The Star Wars universe, one of the things that pissed me off most about it over four decades now is that lack of moral ambiguity. You're either dark side or you're light side, and it's not particularly your fault. It's a, you, know, you have a weakness of character which turns you to being a nasty, evil person. It's got nothing to do with the fact that you know, your mother got killed and you were raised by a kind of alien who was a Jewish surrogate and then you know you turned bad because of upbringing and because you know you because of the tragedies of your past none of that matters it's just a matter of good or bad you make a choice you're going to be one of the goodies or one of the baddies and that's it that's the way that the first six star wars movies and i'm not going to use a stupid numbering system that george lucas thought up to validate bullshit um that moral ambiguity really Kids and you know, people are saying it's a family film. Fair enough. There's room for moral ambiguity in family films, and this movie starts to get a little bit of it there. There's the kind of doubts and the, and the self-loathing that the Bing um, solo character has. I'm not going to call him Kylo Ren because that always sounds like a you know, a Swedish monorail. So increasing the level of moral ambiguity and increasing the well, decreasing the reliance of the kind of good versus evil, light side, dark side thing really does um, make this a better movie than a lot of the other Star Wars films. The fact that Luke had that moment of crisis where he was going to commit an act of atrocity and backed away from it, but the person upon whom he was going to make that act of atrocity read his original intention and not his kind of backing off from it and then shit went to hell um that that's the kind of moral ambiguity i want in movies i want people to make bad decisions not based on some kind of cosmic ontological on off switch it's that kind of binary morality that lets people like trump become president in america simple yeah the world is not a simple place and the choices we make and the reasons why we make them are not simple in life and yet for you know three decades this particular franchise embraced that rather than challenged it and if ryan johnson and the people who in future are going to be making these shows really decide to embrace the moral ambiguity then it's probably going to be a lot more watchable for people like me who appreciate a little complexity in the stuff they watch and kids will appreciate it too um even though it's family fair saying to children that you know, you're either a good or a baddie is not good parenting in my book and showing them that there are complexities there are choices you make you can make a mistake and then be redeemed in spite of that mistake you can make a mistake and then be empowered by it and go totally down the shit trail kids can understand that and it's a probably a good moral lesson for them to learn and credit to this movie for at least trying to do that within the monstrous monolithic juggernaut that is disney okay the next bad thing the whole casino scene which is kind of yeah, it just introduces. Yeah, it introduces us to DJ the Benicio del Toro character, which is cool. But the rest of it is, I don't like horse racing and I don't like Las Vegas. That's pretty much what it comes down to. And though though it does serve a, another purpose in showing that moral ambiguity that's creeping into the Star Wars universe, for the most part, that long tracking shot through the casino was actually a bit dull, and 
had the giant kind of horsey things uh, and the uh, child slaves that run them and all that kind of thing were kind of uh, uh, the child slave thing worked. You didn't actually need to have the giant horsey things, which seemed to be at least semi-intelligent, as is every fucking animal in the Star Wars universe. Um, if Porgs can kind of look up mournfully at Chewbacca and end up hanging around the spaceship, there's a cartoonish aspect to that, which is really fucked. Uh, some things are just animals and you eat them. But, um, yeah, the whole that whole casino thing really does flag. It gives us another front for characters to you know, to split the action between. Um, I don't think it, apart from those two plot beats, one of which is meeting the hacker, uh, DJ, and also showing that moral complexity that they want to put into the universe. Apart from that, it's kind of wasted time and wasted space. It doesn't really fly very well and doesn't, you know, it's... Uh, it feels like padding and it feels like filler. And I don't think that it works that well because of that. Yes, the big horsey looking things are very pretty and are very cute and they CG the fuck out of them brilliantly. But maybe save that for another movie or save it for a TV series, which I've been told there are going to be like 85 of them in the next two years around the Star Wars universe. Save it for that kind of stuff, which they probably will use them in that at some stage. But... It really did feel like it came out of another movie. And I feel also that that sequence, particularly the casino stuff, suffers in comparison to some of the weird and wonderful places that we saw in a movie like Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which has more science fiction wow in it than this whole movie has. Um, really, the state of... That, that brings me to another point about the Star Wars universe. The state-of-the-art in special effects and sense of wonder and things like that has moved a lot since 1977. And I don't believe that the Star Wars franchise has kept up with that in a lot of ways. Valerian, which uh, people say is flawed because the two protagonists don't seem to have much chemistry, and there's a validity to that argument. But apart from that, as a space opera and as an adventure... I found it much more surprising, delighting and entertaining than I found this film because this film has a baggage of seven or eight other films to carry with it and TV series and all sorts of other things and merchandise. Merchandise, most of all, weighs down the Star Wars universe in ways that really aren't serving the story and long-term aren't serving the audience. Yes, I mean, a lot of the audience is welded on and there's almost a cultish devotion to it, regardless of what happens. And in spite of the second three movies that George Lucas made, people seem to turn off any kind of, not critical necessarily, but evaluative facilities in their brain while they watch these movies. It's a fantastic phenomenon. If anybody wants to do a PhD study of why people excuse the flaws in the Star Wars movies... I think that there may be a, a very fertile field to plough there. It's something that intrigues and baffles me by equal parts, that uh, that kind of ability to go, yes, um, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Uh, if you want to see a really good satire on that kind of um, fanboy squee, Red Letter Media do a thing called The Nerd Crew, which is basically their satirical piss take on 
uncritical and non-evaluative and pay for cheer um, YouTube channels about media and about um, science fiction media. It, they really do get it right and they do um, satirise the kind of people who don't evaluate these movies in any meaningful way apart from just going squee a lot in various tones of voice. Okay, good things. Carrie Fisher. I like Carrie Fisher a lot. I think Postcards on the Edge, which I read, is fantastic. I think she was witty and smart, a fantastic writer, a fantastic script doctor, and she also turned up in this franchise of movies. Now, all credit to her. Unfortunately, she's going to be remembered for this particular role, General Organa, Princess Leia kind of thing. But she was so much more than that, and she was somebody who had mental issues, as everybody knows these days, but who punched through that stuff right up until, unfortunately, she died. And I like Carrie Fisher a lot for the non-Star Wars things more than I do for the Star Wars things. I think that she really had an immense talent as a writer. She also had tremendous insights into herself, and she really did have a really bawdy and fun sense of humour. And if she's only remembered for this particular bunch of movies, then I think that that's a dire criticism of the fan base. I think that people should be reading her books and appreciating them. They should see the movie Postcards on the Edge, which is the story of her relationship with her mother, Debbie Reynolds. And I think that she needs to be remembered for more than this shit. And if that doesn't occur, then, you know, fuck you guys. Because... The things that she did beyond Star Wars are the things that I appreciate and that I think that need to be remembered. And her advocacy for mental illness, particularly she did a great interview with Stephen Fry on the very subject, which should be seen. It's it's one of those things where, yeah, she, she made bucks out of this um, movie series, but that was the least of the wonderful things about her as a person. So when they put, yeah, you know, in remembrance of our princess, Carrie Fisher, that kind of thing at the end of the movie, they really should have had a lot more things put into it than that because she was much, much more than that. So um, I'm just going to kind of wrap it up here because I usually do about 30-odd minutes on any one particular movie. But just to summarise, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Uh, there were enough little grace notes and little moments of wonder that I really appreciated, but I think that there needs to be a serious re-engineering of this franchise to refit it for the times in which we live. I'll give you the the big example that that struck me that I haven't spoken about yet, is that bombing raid at the start of the movie, that kind of two-dimensional thing where it was like somebody arranging a bombing raid during World War II on a Japanese battleship. The two-dimensionality of it, the stupidity of the tactics and the strategy, the you know, it, it just doesn't work in the 21st century. We know about three-dimensional combat in space. We've seen it in a ton of movies. And some of them are Star Wars movies, but we've seen them in a ton of movies. And having that slow, ponderous attack, yes, it did have the nice little bit with Oscar Isaac shooting out the turrets, which for some reason were only on one side of the ship. Um, yeah, apart from that, they really need to kind of get rid of that legacy of the limitations of the technology at the time Lucas made the first Star Wars movie and take it elsewhere and take it 
think it through. I mean, a TV series, if a TV series like The Expanse can do Space War better than a $300 million Star Wars movie, then it's time for them to kind of you know, go back to the whiteboard and think this fucking stuff through again because The Expanse does it with real physics as real as they can. And, you know, nobody in a Star Wars movie has ever thrown an asteroid at a planet instead of making an enormous Death Star. It's cheaper to, you know, speed up a fucking asteroid and bring it into a planet and destroy a planet like that. Yeah, Bruce Willis style. But they don't think of things that way. And I think that what they've got to do is start thinking of things like that. Start getting a couple of astrophysicists and NASA involved in things to make the stuff supporting the melodrama of the characters that much more gritty and realistic and and fun. There are going to be action possibilities raised by using real-world physics in the Star Wars universe that are at this stage untapped. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of semi-optimistic about the franchise, but I've seen mixed reviews from some people who are died-in-the-wool Star Wars fans who can see the flaws in it and have learned over the years they've been watching cinema about the complexities and about you know, choices and about weaknesses of plotting of character and underwriting and all those other things. So there are a lot of smart people out there about this stuff now. And when some of these people whom I respect can see the flaws in this film, then there's hope that things will change. And I think that the problem is that the Star Wars franchise is like the biggest ocean liner on the planet or the biggest container ship. Biggest ship on the planet at the moment is a container ship last I looked. And it takes something like 50 kilometres to turn the thing. And I think that the Star Wars franchise is very much like that. It's just got such a, a cultural mass to it that moving it to adapt to circumstance and to adapt to audience changes and to make things as interesting to an audience now as Star Wars was to an audience in 1977 is going to mean they may well have to cut off some of the dead weight and make it a lot more nimble while retaining the essential structure of it and and the things that people appreciate of it. Um, it. It may well happen. I think that Star Wars can learn a lot from Marvel. Marvel had the different phases of things and they really are at the stage now where they're doing a changing of the guard, so I think that that's good. This is something that, of course, this Star Wars movie does. But um, I'm optimistic for the franchise, and I didn't think you didn't think I'd say that, did you? But I think that if they keep on the path of making those changes and getting rid of the shit that just doesn't fit our times and doesn't fit the fact that the majority of their audience are adults now, I think that. It may deteriorate, but I think that it also may be one of those really big films that are dumb. Like all the Roger Moore, James Bond films were fucking stupid, except for the start maybe of Live and Let Die. They were fucking stupid, but they kept making them and people kept watching them until they didn't. And I think that maybe Star Wars needs to kind of look at that as a bad example and move on from it. Um, Hopefully there'll be some better things in future. I'm hopeful that there is. I don't, I don't want to go and see movies that fuck it up. Um, there's room enough in the universe for one Tommy Wiseau's The Room. And I really would hate for the next Star Wars movie to be the Tommy Wiseau 
movie of the Star Wars franchise. I think that if it survived those second three of the Lucas bits, then it'll survive. But I'm a grown-up, and I really want to see grown-up science fiction, and I want to see movies that embrace diversity, which Star Wars, of course, is starting to do, and also embrace complexity of character and complexity of um, gender and complexity of sexuality even. Um, I was a little bit disappointed because I was really hoping that Poe and Finn would get together because the two actors are charismatic as fuck and I think that it's time for that kind of thing to happen. But this particular movie seems to be leading both of those characters in a different direction. And the last thing I'm going to say about this movie is um, Laura Dern was underserved in this movie. Uh, I think her character, her Vice Admiral character, was kind of lame. And I don't think wearing a long evening dress aboard the bridge of a starship is probably going to play well if the gravity cuts out. I think that they should have got her some more practical clothing to wear. I like the purple hair. I think it works. But I definitely think that the way they had her dressed was pretty fucking silly. She wasn't going to a formal ball. She was on the bridge of a starship about to prank it into a Star Destroyer. And yes, Laura Dern has a great figure. But nonetheless, I think that the costume design there was a bit what the fuck. But anyway, uh, I hope that this satisfies my Patreon supporters. You guys are getting it a week before anybody else. And also, um, I hope that I did take away some of the stigma I have whenever I open my mouth about the Star Wars series. I think that um, I've spoken about some good things, I've spoken about some bad things here, and I've kind of embraced my own complexity just as the series is starting to do. So that's about it for this time around. Uh, there will be the regular Martian Drive-In podcast later this weekend, probably on Monday I'll get that out, and that'll go out to everybody at the same time. But this one goes out to the supporters first, a week ahead of time, and from there we go on to everybody else. So thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate that. Hope everybody has a good holiday season. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it sucks to be you. We're all down here having barbecues and sucking on Zuba dupers If you don't know what they are, I'm not going to tell you. But anyway, everybody look after yourselves. As I said, I'll be back with a Martian Driving Podcast, then with the Paleo Cinema Podcast. And um, yeah, this was kind of challenging for me. But ultimately, I'm kind of glad I did it. So take care of yourselves, and I will be back very soon with more bullshit. Bye. <laughs>